Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sephiro Podcast. People seem to still be appreciating it, so we will continue to bring it to you as long as uh, that continues to be the case. Today I'm uh, super happy to be talking with Peter Latta. Peter and I uh, go back quite a ways. He's a uh, Sephiro alum. Uh, we shared an office uh, for a little bit early in our career. Uh, we've known each other since university. Um, and we've been uh, pretty good friends since then. Uh, Peter is the Vice President of Technical Services with Avino Silver and Gold Mines. Uh, he was also the Sales Manager um, with Tenova. Uh, also worked with Gecko Systems, uh, Lexco Resources, and as I mentioned, Sepro uh, in the past. So he's been back and forth uh, a couple times on the operations side and the vendor side. Uh, so he has a really unique perspective on a lot of these um, issues back and forth between uh, vendors and operators. And we talk about that a little bit. Uh, Peter has a Bachelor of Applied Science uh, from UBC, as well as an MBA from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. We cover a fair bit of ground in a pretty short period of time. We talk about the uh, Autotech Mezzo merger and some of the implications for operators, engineering firms, vendors, the industry in general, but, uh, around having these, you know, call them, you know, mega suppliers or one-stop shops. We talk a little bit about strategy in the junior mining and operating mining company space. We talk about BC as a jurisdiction, both for mining operations and as a um, place for uh, someone to set up a business. And then we move into a, a area of what I think is unique experience for Peter, and that is contracting for metal and concentrate sales. I know um, you know Peter downplays this a fair bit in the episode, but I know that he's done a lot of really good work uh, with Avino increasing um, their value of their concentrates and metal sales, both internally in their operations and externally just as part of the contracting and sales process. Uh, so I think there are some um, really good lessons learned that Peter shares uh, near the back end of the podcast. And then we finish off just talking a little bit about uh, travel and the lighter side of work and some advice for new people, new young people entering the industry. So hopefully you guys enjoy the podcast. So Pete, I'd like to start at the beginning. Um, you grew up uh, in the mean streets of Surrey. I think the uh, the term that's used is street urchin. Is that, that correct? Hold, hold, Andrew, hold, on, hold, hold on one second. Hold on one second. Hold on. Hold on. Are you looking up street urchin in Google? <laughs> no, I'm just giving Erica her computer. We only have, we're, we're all working from home here. And we have one office with which we share. So uh, she, I, I was taking over here so I can have some privacy while I do this. Uh, oh, it's nice to have this. an office mate. Yeah, it is. It is. Except when you're trying to do a podcast, I think. She <laughs> some calls. It gets a little jumbled. <laughs> this is an impromptu, impromptu third guest. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you'd like a, a perspective from another vendor in this space, actually, can, can, we can complete the circle. <laughs> we already have somebody from Autotech on the podcast. So <laughs> we're okay for a little bit. Right on. Right on. 
<laughs> Did you get their take on the um, on the merge? Uh, no. Do you have a Do you have a take on the merger? Um. The, well, I obviously mean, we're talking about the auto tech mezzo uh, mega merger on this one. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have a perspective from the outside, but what does it look like more from the inside as far as combining two Finnish companies? You'd think it would be, from a cultural standpoint, an easy sort of thing. It seems like it's complementary in a lot of a lot of ways, and you'd think it would make a, a a pretty strong company to compete against FLS, kind of reducing the number of competitors there and, and, and similar offerings. Well, actually, this, I mean, this jumps into one of the topics that um, we wanted to touch on because, you know, you've been on both sides of the... Uh, supplier vendor side of it and the operator side of it um, a couple times back and forth, which is, um, you know, I think a little bit unusual in the industry. Uh, do you have a perspective on what the consolidation could mean for operators? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of vendors try and brand themselves as one-stop shops. Um, and, you know, from a, uh, a mining company perspective, it's nice to have one point of contact, especially if you're you know, trying to develop a project here. Um, I, I can see the industry consolidating uh, from a vendor standpoint so that the mining company just sees, uh, you know, a complete package from a vendor. And I, I think there, there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, there may be some limitations as far as what equipment gets ends up getting spec'd. But I think from a, from a mining company's perspective, there usually isn't too strong of um, a favorite with respect to brand name of equipment, unless the operator has, you know, past experience or, or really I would say past negative experience specifically. Um, you know, typically a crusher is a crusher, you know, a mill is a mill. Um, and we're looking at, you know, the mining company's kind of looking at how do we provide the best return to the investor and how do we make, make the most cost effective package. So uh, looking at, at that equipment as interchangeable and, and maybe they can compete on whether it's services or, or how they package the equipment to, um, together. I think is is really the differentiator that mining companies are now more interested in seeing rather than, you know, the technological differences, save for, and I say that with a caveat in some very specific circumstances. Like what? Um, well, I think, it, you know, new technology, I think the appetite for innovation, I think is, is, is high in, in, uh, uh, for, for a lot of mining companies, I think for more mature technologies, let's say a thickener, can you really say that there's a differentiating factor from a technology standpoint between the manufacturers when it comes to thickening technology? Now, each manufacturer will will say, will, will put their hand on their heart and say that they have the best feed well or, or whatever the, the differentiating piece within the thickener is. But I think because of the, the nature of the technology and how mature it is, I think that's that's largely superfluous. That's so what do you think the impact then? Because, I mean, traditionally the role of um, engineering firms you know, design firms, EPCM, has been to put together, uh, you know, a complete package of equipment from a variety of different vendors and suppliers, you know, going through the purchasing process, finding the best technology, finding the best price, and then they would be the ones providing the package for the mining company. Do you feel like that type of consolidation among some of the major suppliers starts to marginalize the engineering companies? I think it's a very good question. I think it's a discussion I get involved with a lot of, and, and I'm sure you have a perspective of it as well, being from the vendor side. Um, 
And I think it depends on the, the nature of the project and the nature of the mining company and how much involvement and, you know, whether it's centralized or decentralized management with, with respect to the, uh, uh, the properties and the corporate office uh, relative locations. So I, th I think it really depends. Certainly, I think from a vendor standpoint, they're looking to consolidate and try and get a bigger piece of the pie. Um, engineering companies need to differentiate themselves in some way. I think when technology was emerging and there was a lot to filter through and there wasn't kind of the standard processing flow sheets we're seeing, um, you know, that, that that was more of a task. But, you know, we, we have beaten a, a, a pretty good path when it, becomes, when it comes to some, some straightforward flow sheets. You know, a standard CIL or a standard flotation circuit is, is pretty well understood at this point in time. Yeah. Um, so I, I, think, I think there are certainly opportunities for engineering firms. Um, but but also I think it, it like I said I think it really depends on the on the nature of the project so I think we'd have to talk to specifics to see where the advantages lie. Well, I mean I think specifics is an interesting point because you know there's this um, I don't want to necessarily say view or, or perhaps reality that you know each ore body is different, but I guess that starts to beg the question of how different is it? You know if if it's, you know, like you say, standard CIL package that, you know, has a variety of different pieces of equipment and like, this is what you use for this ore type. And I start wondering is, you know, as ore deposits become uh, lower grade, um, bigger, perhaps more marginal economically, if there's, you know, a bit more of a convergence around um, process type uh, and process equipment and less to be done on creating you know bespoke solutions for different mineral types or if it's the case as things become more marginal that you know costs just have to come down to make it work so like you basically have to use a, a standard process and you can't take a lot of risk on innovation yeah no i, I think that's a very fair question and i think it's specific i, I think like in most industries or, or problems when it comes to we, we tend to highlight the outliers and not Think about the majority of cases, you know, whether that be a prey robbing ore or, you know, a particular uh, type of refractory ore that that's only um, specific to one very small location, you know. Uh, and we tend to think about those cases and then try and generalize processing solutions from there, where probably 90% of, of most, you know, precious metal circuits are are fairly similar. And the margins that we're talking about, you know. Are, are you know in the five to ten percent range when it comes to recovery you know for the most part flotation recovery of a copper circuit or or you know a silver silver circuit in mexico for example is going to be in the range of 80 to 90 percent you know right. uh, regardless of that processing method um and granted you, you know you're always trying to optimize and that 10 percent is ultimately cash flow so it, it's important to, to optimize that is there that many levers to pull? That's that's a fair question to ask, you know, and is cost and schedule, you know, making sure the project's done on time and making sure serviceability uh, at the end of, you know, once once ramp up starts and, and the project gets going, maybe those are more important factors. Uh, certainly as a mature miner now, you know, that's something we're seeing. It's one thing to get the project going, but, you know, over the life of the project, 10 years and or in our case, you know, 15 years left, you're looking at, well, how do I just maintain this sort of thing to, to keep things going? Right. Yeah. The capital cost is one thing, but often, you know, you're going to pay multiples and multiples and multiples of every piece of equipment in, in service and upkeep and operation and, and whatever else, um, which can, I think can often get lost in the purchasing stage. Uh, I, I think often, you know, um, 
when we're doing engineering studies, you look at the project and it's justified, you know, with a with an ore body that's defined at that time. And you know, you're always looking to add to reserves, but that doesn't get captured in the initial study. And so, you know, most operations end up operating a lot longer than they've um, you know been designed for, which right. is fantastic. Which is fantastic because that's actually extremely low cost uh, material because it, it it goes beyond what what they budgeted for. But it does mean that. Um, what am I trying to say with this? That that equipment, I, I that OPEX becomes a more critical driver than CAPEX in in some situations. Certainly, as the life extends past its design life, I guess. Right. Well, I think maybe this brings us back, um, you know, to the uh, initial point about the the mega suppliers, for example, or the one stop shop. Is you know, if if you're looking at certain pieces of equipment. I feel like there's a there's a number of pieces of equipment. You know, you think about the process plant. Um, you know, just stuff like um, pumps, piping, hoses, um, mill liners. You know, like high wear items that you know maybe don't get a ton of attention. And these are things that are easy to kind of like you know package in with the with the whole deal, um, but end up becoming significant operating cost drivers. Uh, once the um, once the mine's in operation, and perhaps you know don't get the same level of attention they otherwise would if somebody had their you know we're going to be operating this for twenty years hat on, as opposed to you know looking at a at a capital cost and let's just say ease of process uh, project execution. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know I, I, we don't have to get into a conversation on on margins of of equipment suppliers, but you know when you look at where does the value come from? Is it in the capital cost there of the initial sale or is it in the, the wear parts? You know, and right. certainly, you know, the razor blade model is, is very popular. And I think getting more popular as people realize that, you know, it's once, once the, the equipment's in the door, then you kind of, they're kind of hooked for buying wear and, and replacement parts, you know? Yeah. And I think also, I don't know if you guys, um, you know, make liberal use of service contracts on site as well. Maybe that's something you can comment on as well. It seems like a lot of people are, and I don't know if this is a, you know, has to do with the ability to, you know, attract and retain um, people in the industry, but it seems like a lot of the maintenance and service is getting um, downloaded to vendors where it used to be um, very much done on site with um, operating personnel. Yeah, I think that speaks to the cyclical nature of, of the business as well. You know, uh, a lot of mines have to start up and then and then shut down uh, for due to, due to low prices. And, uh, you know, for longer employees and more people, and then they're maybe restarting up after a few years. So you kind of learn that, lose that continuity. And you're relying on the vendor for, for being there through those cycles, really. So uh, I can see I can see that happening in some situations. Um and once again, that's going to be really dependent on, on where you're at. Places that are hubs of, you know, mining expertise, certainly places in northern Mexico, some places, you know, in, in Ontario and Quebec, uh, where you're going to be able to draw from, from a lot of experience. Maybe that's not the case so much uh, because there's enough mining infrastructure to support people moving around a little bit. Um, but in places that are more remote, I think that's absolutely an issue. Hmm. So I try not to generalize, you know, the whole industry. We're, we're talking about a lot of different projects in a lot of different locations. And certainly operating a copper project in, in Zambia is different than operating a gold mine in northern BC, you know. Right. Or they might be very similar. Uh, 
equally in some regards. But I think you have to speak to the specific jurisdiction, and and uh, you know that that's that there's a lot of regional differences. I would say. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, I did a you know a bit of a review on the what's called the vertical integration of different um, mining firms, and just see if there's any you know consensus on where people like to draw the line between. Um, you know, something they consider a core competency and have to keep in-house and something they're willing to outsource. And I think, you know, exactly your point there, <laughs> there's basically no rhyme or reason to what some companies would outsource and what some companies would uh, keep in-house. And, you know, if you ask, uh, you know, interview people or, you know, researchers have interviewed people from operating mining companies just to try to figure out what uh, companies identified as their core competencies. It was, you know, basically just ended up being a list of the things the companies did because it was, you know, you'd imagine that if something was a core competency to a particular company that, you know, they certainly wouldn't outsource it, um, you know, and see it as a competitive advantage. But, you know, there's there basically zero consistency. You know, some people outsourced um, mining, you know, and some people said that's our core competency and we're never going to outsource that. And, you know, same thing on the process end, same thing on, you know, site services, logistics, um, commodity sales, you know, there's a pretty wide range of what people uh, would and wouldn't outsource. And it was, a, it was a, a bit piecemeal. So I think that, you know, largely speaks to your point about, you know, depending on where you are in the world and what kind of operation you have, there are some similarities with other operations and some significant differences, um, but it's, you know, very much a tapestry around the industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if you, hey, maybe you have some comments on that about, you know, how Avino thinks about the things you guys outsource and the things you guys keep in house and why. Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. No, I think it's a good question. But once again, I think it, it speaks to the size of the company. You know, as a junior, you're going to be constrained on, you know, how how many people you can really uh, really have employed as well at, at the corporate office, you know, versus a, versus a larger company. So you were relying more on consultants and, uh, and vendors and, and engineering firms than let's say uh, uh, a more integrated miner would be, or, or one that could afford to have a larger headcount. Well, so, maybe, but I feel like it's a good case study because you guys certainly have to be um, very, like it has to be your front of your mind. What's a priority? You know, if, if people make a difference, especially at the higher level, um, you know, it certainly tells a story around who you guys employ and which senior positions you have in house and where you make use of consultants. Because I'd imagine that, um, you know, if something was considered critically important, um, you know, you guys would make a point of having that in house as opposed to, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I had a, um, you know, reasonable tenure with Suncor that liked to do, um, a lot of both, but you can see there's, you know, there isn't necessarily the same discipline they need to have, especially, you know, perhaps now, uh, you know, but when oil was, um, you know, well over a hundred dollars a barrel, you know, there, you don't necessarily need the same discipline about what positions you have within the company, um, as you would when times are tighter or when the company is a lot smaller, you know? Yeah. I mean, it speaks to what the core competency really is. And as a junior, you know, there's financial flexibility, I think, you know, certainly helps a lot being able to make changes or acquisitions or sell different properties, you know, you know, relatively quickly. I think that that certainly helps a lot. Um, one of the things that helps Avino is that, that we're fairly decentralized in that we, we provide a lot of uh, autonomy to the operation in Mexico. 
Uh, we have a lot of key operators there with a lot of experience. Uh, and that speaks to Vino's history as well, that they've been with the company for a long time. Uh, and we kind of let them operate. And that allows us to stay lean uh, overhead, so we're not spending a bunch of money on, on G&A. Uh, Do you think it also speaks to company focus, you know, because I mean, another, I feel like a lot of companies or some, you know, would identify them as, you know, operations focused. So they'd have a bunch of people at head office, you know, really turning the screws on operations um, and focused on it in that way, as opposed to, um, you know, maybe having a bit more of an external view is, is sort of what I'm re reading between the lines of your description of Vivino. Yeah, I, I think it depends on what the what the market is expecting in terms of value creating. You know, it's the time where the market expected cash flow, right? And then there's going to be a large focus on operations, and we went through that the last couple of years. And now, what I think is coming back around in the market is a focus on exploration. Uh, you know, and it's hard for large companies to pivot like that and how they would reorganize. You know, certainly we've seen that in some of the large gold companies. Um, but that and that's the flexibility that I'm talking about with respect to the smaller companies. You know, we've just uh, we just got uh, we just sold a property uh, in BC here, Braylorn. Uh, we were able to pass that on to an exploration focused company in BC, uh, and you know we can ramp up our exploration efforts in Mexico. So that's something that you know we could we could decide and, and make happen in very short order because we don't have a lot of organizational inertia, I guess. Now, was that a was that a conscious decision for you guys to double down in Mexico and try to exit BC for you know geographic? You know, I hate the word, but like you know synergies or you know, maybe efficiency is a bit less of a, a, a you know management BS word. Um, yeah, but, you know, being able to focus more there rather than being split between two geographies. Yeah, it's not quite as cut and dry in that as that, and and the story is a lot deeper than that. But you know, at some point in time, you have to take an inventory of your skills and abilities, and and what's happened in the marketplace, and and you know, you, you you've taken a shot, and you've maybe advanced a project in a certain way, or maybe you thought the market would go a different way than than you planned, uh, and you have to make the best of it, given your you know you're you're constantly adjusting. So to say that you know, we're going to give this five years and, and take a look at it. I don't think you go into that at the start. You have an initial thesis and then things happen. You know, for example, uh, the big thing that happened was the Mount Pauly disaster that absolutely right. changed the landscape in BC. And had you had known that was going to happen beforehand, maybe you would have thought more carefully about how you, how you enter BC, uh, which is not necessarily an easy jurisdiction to operate in um, from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, but there's like that's an interesting. I feel like that's an interesting thing about BC is this. Uh, you know, maybe this will be a lot less interesting for people outside of BC, but perhaps they can, you know, see parallels to their own jurisdictions, especially people in Canada, where you know BC has a huge history of mining and forestry. Um, you know, largely the reason why people well, fur to begin with, and then mining and forestry, why people moved this way. Uh, well, you know, European settlers moved this way um, to begin with. And it seems like BC's, uh, you know, taken a strong, uh, maybe strong is too strong of a word, but at least a, you know, meaningful steps away from the resource sector. Um, and, I, and I guess this is a case, uh, a case in point of seeing that happen. I mean, do you guys feel that on the mining side, Navina? Well, keep in mind that we we've sold it to another company that's more solely focused on BC. Yeah. Uh, so, I think. You know, it's not that the the the, the property has disappeared or anything. It's currently being advanced by another company that's that's more apt, uh, there or solely focused in BC, right? So, right. to say, do I want to make any comments on the regulatory environment in BC 
as compared to Mexico. Certainly Mexico is where our experience lies and we find it easier to operate. That's not to say that it is easier. It's just that's where our experience is. Um, and, and when we compare the two and, you know, you make a, you, you put your hand on your heart and you look at where are we best, uh, where's best to, to put investor dollars, we, we came to the conclusion that Mexico is probably the, the safest and, and best bet for us. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever heard you give a more politically neutral answer. So congratulations. Huh? Uh, well, I, you know, I, 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 think, I think it depends in BC. You know, I, like, I want to see BC mining industry succeed, but I know that, that there's a lot of challenges. I was lucky enough to be part of the uh, Mining Association of BC. I sat on the board there. A uh, great group of people that really understand the local issues. Um, you know, I, we had a very small voice on that. I, I was more of a witness because there's obviously a lot of large operators here. Uh, but it's not easy for a junior company to operate in BC, certainly. And, you know, it has been in the past uh, and, and rules have changed. Uh, certainly the, the Vancouver Stock Exchange is is, is an artifact of, of how easy yeah. it was to operate. And I'm not saying that that, that, that was the, the, the end-all, be-all, that was the heyday or that's what we need to go back to. But it does. It did set a precedent, and and it has been getting more difficult to operate. And capital is global, so it it, it goes wherever is it it can easily uh, it can operate easiest, you know. So, um, do political leaders need to be aware of that? Absolutely, you know, in, in a globalized world, for sure. Um, that being said, it, there there are some advantages to BC, um, you know, that that Mexico doesn't have. So. Right. Yeah. Even within Canada, I mean, I, I, this is somewhat qualitative, but there does seem to be a shift of um, companies, you know, both in relocation and companies that are created to set up shop in Toronto rather than, than Vancouver more recently, right? You know, over the past decade or so, um, you know, people seeing Vancouver is not as interesting when it comes to, um, you know, setting up a junior or even having their uh, base of operations as an operator, if they're a global operator. Um, you know, they may choose uh, not to set up shop in, in Vancouver. Um, you know, and a little bit of research I've been doing over the past couple of years seems to, you know, indicate that, that there are, um, as time goes on, more prevalence of operating companies deciding to, to set up their head office in Toronto rather than Vancouver. Right. And, yeah. And I guess it just comes back down to, to access to capital, you know, and, and what market happens to be attractive at the time. Uh, that being said, things change all the time. You know, certainly marijuana industry was was quite attractive in BC, and and maybe we're through that cycle now, and and maybe mining comes back. Certainly, there are a lot of junior sectors, like as I mentioned, as a as an artifact of the Vancouver Stock Exchange. Uh, there there used to be a lot of large companies with, with New taking over Gold Corp. Obviously, there's one less, but um, yeah, I, I I still think there's a number of advantages in in Vancouver. Um, we'd like to see it it, it build up. Um, what is from a venture standpoint? What do you think would support that? I mean, the, the flow through tax credit is is certainly one thing that's been extended that that helps, and that's all of Canada. Um, but yeah, I guess there's two levels. Of this. One is you know Canada versus other jurisdictions, and the other is Vancouver versus other places in Canada. So there's kind of two levels of um, yeah you know, two layers on that. Yeah. I mean, accessing talent is a big thing and, and probably housing pricing being, being kind of preventative there. Uh, right. Maybe we'll see a change in that. I don't know, but that's, that would be true for all industries. You know, I, I imagine tech is going through the same struggle there. And I don't mean tech, the mining company, I mean the, the industry, uh, the technology yeah. sector. 
Um, so how do you attract top talent? And whether that be in accounting or, or engineering um, or in operations, you know? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we still have UBC, but, you know, obviously, uh, quite clearly has the um, top mining program in the world. So, I mean, that's a great source, <laughs> <of> <laughs> great yeah. source of talent right there, as long as you can keep people in Vancouver after uh, graduating from that program. Yeah, how do you attract top talent? It's it's a question I think everything everybody struggles with and every industry struggles with, right? Because if it's always well, a race, especially, Vancouver, especially Vancouver, I mean, we see that too. It's, you know, there, there are lots of times when we've had positions to fill and, um, you know, people from other places in Canada or North America or wherever um, interested, but, you know, they take one look at the cost of living in Vancouver and, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it can become a pretty tough sell to get somebody to relocate uh, to the West Coast of BC. Right. Yeah. I think that was the big draw. Certainly I went to Fort McMurray. I worked for, for Shell for, for a little while at the start of my career. Um, and that was the big draw there, you know, and they were willing to, Fort McMurray was expensive at the time, but the company was willing to put you up. And it, it felt like, you know, there was a lot of incentive to build the city up. Uh, where Vancouver, it's more of a, you know, if you can make it, uh, you know, you figure out a way there. If you if you have to stack, you know, four or five people in a one-bedroom apartment, that's what that's what some people were doing. Right. So, Two people in the same home office. Right. Exactly. And we, we don't even get our own separate offices. But, uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. I, but that being said, you know, it's a beautiful place to live. So, right. Yeah. Right. Pros and cons. No free lunch yeah. anywhere. Right. Right. But what uh, do you think yeah. as a as a vendor set up in in the suburb? How do you how do you see that versus was that a conscious decision from a lower uh, industrial real estate perspective, or you know, how do you see being um, remote from a from a major city, or is it even important to be close to a major mining center um, as a vendor um yeah i mean that's hard to comment on not hard to comment on but i feel like there's no clear answer to that um i think you know being like we have industrial space you know so we kind of have to be out, outside but it also helps for quality of life and people being able to live uh, outside of the city for you know <laughs> somewhat less expensively but but not a lot um i think that you know one of the things that we often talk about is you know if because there's legacy, like any company that started, you basically have a legacy location, I think, unless somebody makes a big leap um, at some point in the company's history. But, you know, we're we're in Langley outside of Vancouver because, uh, you know, the founder of the company um, initially set up shop in, in Abbotsford and then moved a bit closer. There's some uh, some space in Langley and like that's just kind of how the company grew. So like, you know, kind of followed the cow path and, and we're still there. You know, Vancouver's not bad. Well, it's, it's good in the sense that, you know, there historically has been a really strong mining industry. I mean, it'd be certainly a lot tougher if we were in, you know, Winnipeg or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, it's like once you have access to an international airport, um, because mining's a global business, you know, and Vancouver's a, a reasonable location to get to um, a lot of other places internationally, you know, whether it's South America or, you know, it's a bit of a trek to Australia, but there are direct flights and that kind of thing. It, um, you know, it's not so bad. Uh, but we do talk about, hey, if it was a blank sheet of paper, where would we be? Um, you know, because Vancouver it is a little bit out of the way when it comes to, uh, you know, Europe, Africa. Um, you know, and, and frankly, being in Toronto, it would be easier. To, it would be easier to get to a lot of places. Um, Montreal, perhaps. And we've got our, uh, you know, our aggregate-focused office in, in Montreal, and that's being built up, um, which is a bit more of a, 
you know, it's called a logical location from, you know, centrality to uh, other countries from a flight point of view for cost of living. Um, you know, so there's definitely incentive to be hiring more in that office to the extent that talent's available and there are lots of really skilled people, um, you know, in the greater Montreal area. So, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, pros and cons, I guess. But I think, you know, more often, you have somebody the story of why some, place, some company is where it is. And, it, and generally, I think there's a legacy answer to it nine times out of ten. Right. Um, if not more frequently than that. Right. Um, yeah, but again, it, you know, like the same challenges you identify, mostly around, um, you know, personnel uh, and trying to attract people um, that, you know, continues to be a bit of a struggle. Um, there's another thing that I wanted to talk about. And that is, and maybe this, you know, it was a bit of a crappy segue, uh, but I'll do my best, you know, speaking to the insourcing, outsourcing thing. And I was talking to you a little bit about the uh, contracting and metal sales side of it. You know, we talked we talked about this in round one, and I thought it was a, a good topic, um, you know, to make sure that we got out there in the world, because I feel like you have some uh, good insight on your experience uh, from Avino on some of the nuances of contracting for metal sales, which I think, you know, certainly myself, if we're talking about this, uh, you know, just hadn't thought deeply about it and just kind of thought it to be, oh, you know, you're selling a commodity into a fairly liquid market and, you know, there's, there's not a lot to it. Um, but you certainly disabused me of that uh, understanding pretty quickly. So maybe you wouldn't mind just sort of describing some of the stuff you've done, um, you know, with the thought of giving people a bit more education information on uh, metal sale contracting. Yeah, and certainly in the junior space, you know, there's a big focus on, on mining. There's a big focus focus on geology, you know, uh, and metallurgy, certainly, the, the, the big three. But what's, what happens once you make a product? You know, there's the logistics of getting it to port and then, and then selling it in the market. And we are price takers, not, not price makers. For the most part, it is a liquid market there. But there are a number of different buyers and uh, premiums and penalties, depending on what type of product you're selling and what it has in it and, and what you can do with it. Uh, and it's not necessarily a linear, linear scale. There's, you know, it's quantizer. There's different shells depending on, um, you know, depending on the quality. So it's really understanding that downstream market, which is something that I wasn't familiar with, uh, you know, working on site or, or working as a vendor, because it's something that I wasn't exposed to. Um, you know, it, Understanding the smelter and what product they're taking, um, if if you're producing a concentrate on site, uh, and there can be a number of advantages. And depending on your size, you know that that's always a trade-off that I'm sure large large op, uh, companies are are looking at with regards to whether they make a a, a concentrate product or or a final saleable product. Uh, it's nice to keep capital costs down by producing a concentrate. Um, that's what we do at Afino. And at one point in time, we were producing six different products. Okay. So, uh, for what, the, you know, the, you don't mind. Uh, you know, various grades of uh, of a copper concentrate with varying levels of precious metals in it, uh, different grades. So each one of those we would consider a separate product because they had separate values on them, uh, not just for values in the sense that they got different grades, but that uh, their payment values would would be different, or their their penalty elements would be a little bit different. Therefore, no, this is the products valued differently. This is based on just what feed grades are coming in and what you're able to achieve. Like there was always, like as in the case, there was always a particular target you were trying to hit. And sometimes you had, you know, lower grade stuff that you sell in different ways, or was it, you know, a conscious effort on, you know, different days to produce different types of concentrates? 
Yeah, a little bit of both, depending, you know, depending on on what the mix was. Uh, you know, you as a as a mine, you have varying feed sources, you know, and we were lucky that we had, you know, historic stockpiles. Then we had uh, a couple of different areas that we were mining uh, that had different grades because no ore body is homogeneous. And we were lucky in that the mill had four completely independent circuits. Uh, and you'd never design a new mill like this because it wouldn't be very cost effective. But for historical reasons, we kind of just continued to add circuits onto the onto the mill as we expanded. So what we ended up with is four completely independent circuits. So they could be fed independent sources of ore and and essentially produce an independent product. Then you add a gravity product on top of that, as well as um, uh, an additional flotation product from a differential circuit and a lead zinc circuit. So you end up getting two products out of, out of one flotation circuit. So that's a total of six products. Uh, and these can be mixed in different ways to, to have different values. And it's not like selling them individually. It's, it's kind of the, the case where uh, the, so the, the total can be more than the sum of its parts, really, if it's blended in the right way, just because uh, each smelter, depending on the jurisdiction around the world, and we sold, we've sold to smelters in, in Canada, in Japan, in Korea, in China, in Europe, specifically in Germany, um, you know, all of them have different requirements, different regulatory requirements, what can be imported with respect to penalty elements, for example, something like arsenic. So it's understanding, you know, where can we get the best value? And it's not clear all the time. And that's a changing, shifting landscape as well. So whether you use an intermediary or whether you go direct to the smelter, there's that element that that overlays on top of it. Um, so at the mine, you kind of let the miners or, or we let the miners mine what was most efficient. And, you know, from the processing standpoint, we're always trying to maximize recovery. Okay. So each step is trying to optimize. And then at the end, you're, you're left with a product and you're like, okay, well, which ways can we blend these and to make the most value? And uh, that was the exercise. And then you, it's an iterative process. So then you go back and say, well, can we actually take more of this? Okay. Yeah. We can shift our mind to mine more of this. Albeit that that moves a bit slowly because, you know, shifting your mining resources is uh, logistically, it, it can be difficult, whereas blending concentrate products is, is much more straightforward. So you have more flexibility there once it's been produced. Right. Okay. So those are the um, internal moves that, that you guys can make. But I also, you know, recall you telling me a, a lot of external stuff that, you know, yeah, there's the, once you, once you have something that has a market, there are still moves that you can, a lot of different moves you can make. Yeah. And so on the sales side, it's it's understanding that there's going to be a number of different buyers and you want a competitive environment and competitive contracting. Um, and whether that means a long term contract, a short term contract or, or a spot sale. Um, so you want to understand really the product value and, and what the marketplace is looks like. Um, and that can be different for concentrate as opposed to the hard metal. And, and that's a part that I didn't really appreciate until I got into it. Uh, you know, smelters are, are another step in the process and, you know, they, they have a requirement for certain feed materials. So their demand for concentrate might be quite high, even though the demand for the metal quite low. Uh, there's a situation that, that arises when that happens. Um, and, and you see that on your terms. So you, even though the metal might not be, be uh, uh, you know, hitting, hitting highs as far as pricing, the competitiveness from the smelter might be might be quite high because there's demand for their product. So now, why, just, why might that occur? 
like why might you have that disconnect is this a capacity thing like guys have like smelters have to keep running so they need a certain amount of minimum feedstock to keep going and yeah absolutely. or something else going on absolutely yeah you don't want to stop and start your smelter uh, and depending on smelter shutdown you know if there's an environmental issue in in china for example this would go the other way or uh, really what we've seen over the last number of years because treatment charges have really come down, China's built a ton of smelters. So yeah. it creates a very competitive landscape for that product. Uh, sometimes see, so smel smelter margins start declining because there's too much competition there. So it may be the case that metal price is going down, but the concentrate is still strong because people are scrambling for it. Right. Uh, you know, or there's a, a big mine that shuts down. So then a, a feed, some feed stock that was expected at a smelter then doesn't show up. And now they have this big hole. So they're willing mm. to offer more competitive terms. That happened, you know, when, when a big, uh, when big copper mines shut down due to either striking in, in South America or, you know, in this recent case of, of, uh, of the pandemic. Yeah. So did you see, I guess, I guess just to, you know, bring in a bit of a, COVID aside there, because, you know, obviously can't not talk about it at any opportunity. Um, was there, there seemed to be like a commensurate shutdown in uh, smelter operations, so it kind of balanced out, because I mean, some of these major mines um, were completely shut down. South Africa shut down completely, you know, Peru, um, I, I can't recall exactly what the situation in Chile was, but like a lot of different jurisdictions shut their mines down. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that actually had to sit the, the case of, because these smelters didn't shut down. Or they still wanted to stockpile material. Whether or not they shut down, I actually can't be certain of that. But uh, they were still buying, uh, and they, they wanted to increase their buying. And whether that was to to supplement their stockpiles to keep that that feed stock high, uh, I'm not certain. But it resulted in, in in high demand from the smelters anyway. And were you guys able to take advantage of any of that? Because Mexico was shut down for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, luckily we we had some concentrate that that we were still able to sell. We had a long term commitment with our our partner with Samsung. Uh, where that material does end up going to China. Um, so we were able to fill, fulfill our contract, which was quite good that, that we had enough material to keep going. Uh, once again, to due to a you know very favorable area where we were mining that produced a lot of concentrate. So it was hats off to the mining guys, processing guys did well. And as a result, we didn't really get hit too hard from the, the Mexican shutdown. Right. So you said you've got this agreement with Samsung. So what's the, maybe talk through, you know, pros and cons of having a, a longer term offtake agreement, or is that just for um, particular products for you guys? I was going to say, you know, uh, long term offtake versus, you know, selling to spot and, or negotiating um, more regularly. If there's any pros and cons of those two types of arrangements. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of like buyer's remorse when it comes to contracting, right? Because you, you make a deal <laughs> at, at a certain price and you, you, you feel like you've made a really good deal, but then the price improves or something like that, you know, and, and once you've locked that in, you've locked that in. Now, Samsung's a phenomenal partner. It's nice to be partnered with one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, very ethical company, uh, strong balance sheet. So we're not worried that they're going to go out of business anytime soon, which is, I think, very important when you're a small company and, and uh, you know, looking to, uh, they, they certainly um, provided some financing for us. So they were able to help us get going, uh, which was fantastic. Um, but they're a bigger organization, and they uh, they they take a little longer to to make decisions and respond compared to a, a smaller organization. So there's some uh, there's some of the I wouldn't say conflicts too strong of a word, but there's some friction with with culture and and size of the company. That being said, I think it's been pretty harmonious over the years. Um, 
and you know we've been able to to maintain and, and fulfill our contract and we look forward to continuing that with them um that being said there's a lot of opportunity for the smaller scale for certain products um to take advantage of some of the prices that, that change in the marketplace right what are your thoughts on that side of it actually i feel like that's an interesting topic when it comes to you know organizational size and and being a match um you know for different companies to do business with um you know versus and i'm just thinking of the example yeah samsung's a gigantic company you know avino is a smaller mining company um you know do you think there's a there are you know cultural issues when when you have a or maybe it's um you know negotiating or power issues when it comes to smaller companies dealing with larger companies and vice versa yeah, I mean, the, 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 um, it's a fair question. Do I think there are issues? Uh, I mean, I think it's something you need to be aware of. Um, right. what, what can be done about it? Well, I, I think you recognize that going in with eyes wide open, but th there is a lot of advantages as a junior company, like I said, partnering with, with one of the biggest companies in the world. Right. Um, culturally, I think it's always important to understand the cultural differences. I, it's been a really great learning experience going to Korea and understanding how they operate and how they view things because they're going to view things differently. And that diversity is just going to make, you know, your pers perspective stronger. It's, it helps with my other negotiations when it comes to selling our different materials for sure, uh, and giving me more perspective on on the the whole concentrate industry. So that's been that's been very positive. Um, and as we know, the the mining business is global. So, you know, I've been lucky enough, uh, as you have been, to travel the world early in my career and see how a lot of different operations work and, and meet all different types of people. So I think that broader perspective just really helps. And I think that's what makes the mining industry really unique, you know, is that most of us have traveled for a good part of our career. And, and we have these experiences that only people within the mining industry can really relate to. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think that's that's quite interesting. And I'll relay this coin, one story. We're talking about cultural differences in, in Korea. So, you know, we had to negotiate this one contract. And, uh, you know, we're with this. Obviously, Samsung has many different divisions. So we're with the head of this of one of the divisions, very prestigious position this, this gentleman had. Uh, and he wanted to take us golfing. And he was an absolutely incredible golfer. He smoked both, both me and my boss. Uh, but afterwards, you know, we didn't discuss business on the course, just a casual, beautiful course, huge greens. Uh, they had self-driving cars, which was absolutely incredible. I felt like I was golfing in the future. But afterwards, uh, you know, we finished the 18 holes. It's beautiful. Uh, we go into the locker room and he's like, hey, do you want to go for a steam? Well, absolutely. No problem. But here, uh, steam and hot tub is, is completely naked, right? So... He immediately jumps in and, uh, you know, takes off his shorts and we're like, well, I guess, you know, when, when in Rome or when in, when in Seoul, really. <laughs> so you end up negotiating, you know, the contract naked in a hot tub together. So that was quite what could be better. What could yeah, be better? A cultural experience where you leave nothing uh, that's, that's not exposed. So, uh, right. but that, but that's the culture there. And, and that's, you know, that's just. Okay. So, Keeps just, it from bringing in your cheat sheet. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> no, you got nothing to hide here, you know? <laughs> well, usually, uh, you know, I usually 
um, start off these conversations with some lighter questions, but maybe uh, we can flip it around and end with some lighter ones. You brought up the travel thing. Where's uh, where's your favorite place you've been? Oh, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed my time in Argentina. Um, you know, that being said, I spent some time in Indonesia, which was very memorable. I spent a month in Russia that was that was uh, that I won't forget. <laughs> I remember it snowed on August twenty fifth, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've been very lucky, like I said, as of you to travel. You know, kind of the complete globe. What I really like going to now is, you know, I, I used to go to new places or we used to go to new places all the time or different countries or different mind sites. And, and that was really good when you're young. What I really like is going back to the same place and kind of developing relationships there. I really like going back to Mexico. Uh, right. When it comes to places that are easy to travel yet are really enjoyable from a um, just a comfort standpoint, whether it's food or the culture or or just interacting with people. Mexico is is amazing. Uh, Who's the old man and you talking, eh? You yeah, need to be comfortable yeah. on your travels. You're you're good. But, <laughs> but you know, you can get there in a day. And I remember I used to fly to uh, I had to fly flying to Russia. I had to fly to uh where was it? What's the with not Vladivostok, the other place. Magadan? Magadan. And you fly you know, I fly eight hours to London, then you fly two hours to Moscow. And you have to fly another 11 hours across Russia. Right. Yeah, so, the shame about that one from Vancouver is I could easily be just like, a, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a guess here, but like a seven-hour flight from Vancouver or something like that. Sure, sure. If you could, but, go, if you could go the easy way. Not commercially, really. If you so. can't. No, yeah, you can't. No. So uh, I really enjoy going to Mexico now. Um but when I was young, man, I don't know, Indonesia, Argentina, like you said, was really good. Brazil, we spent a lot of time. Um, now, was in your mind, because like these are these are very different places, right? So is this a like, a, is it something about like the place of the geography or is it more about the experience that you had when you were there that, that's memorable? Yeah, I mean, I guess the ability to solve some problems and make an impact as well, you know. Uh, if you're working with some really good people where, where, you know, you can, you can, you can gel as a team. That's been a lot of fun. Certainly the food and the cultural experience or how remote you are, you know, some places you feel like you're on the edge of the planet uh, and that's right. pretty cool. So I think it's, it's unique, you know, and, and to have all those experiences, I just feel incredibly lucky. And you look at what perspective that got, that gives me to the, for the, for the breadth of the industry. And, and I could feel nothing but gratitude for that, you know? And it makes me wonder, certainly post-COVID, uh, for, for recent graduates. You know, a lot of my experience comes from seeing different mind sites or talking to different people or understanding how, how mining operations can be viewed differently. I thought that was so critical in your, in your formative years, just post-graduation. I just wonder how recent grads are going to get that with, one, limited travel, and two, maybe mining companies not being so um, liberal with, with how they provide experience for for new grads you know right right well maybe a, that's a it's a good time to ask if you if you have any advice given the current circumstances for any any new grads i think just don't say no to any opportunity you know if something comes up um be willing to 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 do it uh and you know prior prioritize experience over over money early in your career it'll certainly pay dividends later um right I guess that would be that would be my advice. Sounds good. Well, Pete, appreciate you taking the time. I feel like it's been super interesting. Hopefully, the people listening will uh, feel the same way. Um, you know, maybe we'll get lucky, completely lose this podcast, get to talk again in round three. 
Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Always a pleasure.